Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. Hi, I'm John Muster, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm a longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan and guitar player, Al John. Go. Shake it, not skirt. You can email me, Al John, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, what a weekend. Uh, I've been at the Creative Talent Network, the CTN Expo, uh, all weekend starting on Friday morning. And it has been just insane. Uh, I've run into so many, uh, great friends and made some new friends. And, uh, I got to tell you, Al John, uh, just absolutely amazing. I saw a lot of our past guests, people like Don Hahn and John Musker and Jorgen Klubin and Kirk Hansen and Kirk Wise. And, you know, the list <laughs> just goes on and on. And, and I've also, you know, seen people I hadn't seen in like since before the pandemic, like years. I love it. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to get them booked on the show for the new year. I love it. You know, um, whenever you do, trade shows it's always a lot of fun because it's a family reunion of sorts from people that you've worked with in the past or you know people you share common love and bond with and i just live vicariously through your facebook photos dave you know <laughs> well, everyone's thank you posting. very much yeah yeah you know I, i've been trying to get pictures thrown up on my facebook page uh just so people can see uh, i mean it's just really absolutely fantastic and a lot of really terrific people i mean you know just, you know, newbies coming into the business to fans to, you know, everything under the sun. It's just really a terrific uh, get together. And Tina Price, you know, who we had as a guest a couple months ago mm -hmm. talking about the CTN Expo and the Creative Talent Network that she's built up uh, from from literally just an idea uh, she's built into this, you know, big 
uh, Empire. She's pivoting with it. Uh, she's making this event uh, more educational um, uh, with all kinds of uh, programming. Uh, I mean, it's just been really fantastic. Uh, and by the way, I, I had a chance to uh, uh, see Andrea Deja in person. Yeah. I, I haven't seen in person in, in quite a while. And, you know, we, we are dropping uh, today uh, part three uh, of uh, of the interview we've done with him and uh so and he was thrilled that we're sending him the links because he's putting them up on his blog and his website so awesome. uh just really a lot of fun that's awesome like i said i've been living through your uh facebook posts and seeing you reunite with all these people face to face after years of being kind of you know in in lockdown and now coming out and everybody seemingly you know kind of kind of bringing back a lot of their old school, you know, get togethers and things. This is awesome to see. Yeah. And, and by the way, I had a chance to talk with a bunch of folks. And uh, so let, let's just have a quick listen to some of those people. Hey, I'm with Kirk Hansen, who's one of our past guests on the Skull Rock podcast. Kirk, are you enjoying CTN? Uh, just arrived, but I anticipate enjoying it. All right. <laughs> are you speaking or doing anything? Uh, I, uh, I usually help Tina out with doing portfolio reviews, so I could be here for a few hours looking at portfolios. Fantastic, because I'm doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of us that have been roped into portfolio reviews. Well, I would say roped in, but uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. I look forward to doing it every, yeah. every chance I get. It, it's really terrific, I think, seeing the younger generation coming in and uh, the newbies. Well, there's that, and also they, they want our job, so. Well, there's, al there's always that. That, but the industry is really expanding. So oh, sure. There, there, there's a need for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. We need warm bodies everywhere. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, Kirk, thanks for stopping by the Slow Rock Podcast. Absolutely. It's good seeing you as always. Yeah. Hey, Al John. Uh, I am here with Sandro Cluzo, who uh, is from Italy and Brazil. Spends right. his time between Italy and Brazil. And this just shows you that the Slow Rock Podcast is a uh, international podcast. Podcast show. So, Sandro, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much. And uh, are you enjoying the CTN conference? Yeah, it's been great. And it's very small this year, but it's been great to see all of my friends here and um, make new friends too, you know, new connections. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm working for Renegade on a game in Tartakovsky account, to the animation. 2D animation, fantastic. And you know something, 2D animation is alive and well. Well, it's coming back, I think, slowly, but it's coming back. I've yeah. seen a few projects. Hey, I'm with uh, Steve Moore, uh, talented director, storyboard artist, and all-around good guy. How's CTN for you? It's super swell. All right. And uh, you running into a lot of old friends? Yeah, I got a bunch of them right over here. What, what do you do well, with my radio? Yeah, voice? like we've got we've got uh, Carolyn Bates, Bates producer here. Carolyn Bates. Hey, hi. This is Carolyn Bates. Yeah. What do you think of CTN so far? It's been so much fun. I mean, we've been meeting so many people. So yeah, I mean, it's that, that's what it's all about, is running into so many great friends. And we've got Dan Jupe. Dan Jupe is here, another talented director, animator, story artist, all-around good guy. Uh, yeah. Well, Al John, i got to tell you, we've got another old friend who's been on the Soul Rock podcast. We've got Kirk Wise with us. Kirk, how are you? Doing good, Dave. Great to see you. It's good seeing you. And let me ask you, how is the CTN Expo for you? 
Um, gosh, I haven't been in quite some time, um, but it's great seeing so many old friends. I, I hadn't been here, I, I literally hadn't been here 30 seconds where I was running into uh, old colleagues and friends from my future animation day, so that's been really fun. And, and are you doing anything with Satina? Are you just here for, you know, to visit with people, or are you doing any portfolio reviews? Uh, no, nothing like that. I'm here as uh, Tina Price's guest. She very graciously invited me. Um, uh, this is just sort of part of my wanting to, to reconnect with old friends and, and connect with like the younger generation of artists. I think it's awesome. I mean, and, you know, just terrific talking with all of those folks. I mean, that's just a little sampling. Uh, you could hear a lot of ambient noise there. I wish I could have gotten better recordings. I have to I have to I have to be tutored by you because honestly, <laughs> Al John, with you not being there, uh, I was like fumbling with the technology. You know, what, what can I you know, I mean, the shore microphone is beautiful and people were actually commenting on our shore microphone. But um, I, I I'm going to have to have a a serious tutorial with you on on how to how to operate all this stuff no problem we'll we'll get that sussed out but uh you know it is nice to kind of capture some of these uh these moments there while you're at the convention because you you can feel the energy there and you can feel the people there they just are excited to be there so i'm glad you're able to at least get some some audio from all that yeah, and, and by the way, you know, uh, they kicked it off last Thursday night with the 40th anniversary screening of Secret of Nim. Yeah, uh, that was that was Don Bl Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, and Gary Goldman's uh, uh, big feature film after they left Disney, and uh, so that was really neat. Um, and also uh, over, I think it was on Friday night, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, Henry Selleck screened uh, Wendell and Wild, his latest stop motion film, nice. uh, which is getting a lot of really great buzz. Uh, and you know, there were there was all kinds of uh, tutorials and uh, sessions with artists, and you know, I I was reviewing uh, portfolios along with a whole bunch of other people like Kirk Wise, uh, excuse me, uh, Kirk Hansen. And um, uh, the Bancroft, Bancroft brothers were there and, yeah. you know, all, all of this. So it was really a lot of fun. And I would encourage anybody who, who's interested in animation or is looking to go into the animation uh, industry as a career. Um, think about the CTN uh, next year. Uh, it's always in November and uh, it, it, Tina does a terrific job. Well, very good. Well, looking forward to seeing what else you're able to come up with over the weekend. So that is great as we record this. But uh, I tell you what we need to do now is, I, I guess, go into some uh, headline news. If I can find the button. Well, I, I, before we do that, are we going to do our, our picks for the week? No, Dave, we uh, aren't. No, I'm just joking. Yes, we are. All right. Look, all right. Let's I got do music. That. It's our picks of the week. <laughs> it's so cheesy. I love it. I love um, it. <laughs> I got so, I, you know, I've got all kinds of movie trailer music now that is like free for us to use. So now I'm just like going crazy. Okay. Well, now, hey, listen, I, I went and saw a 60th anniversary screening of To Kill a Mockingbird with yes. Gregory Peck. Yes. And by the way, first film appearance of Robert Duvall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, play, he, he plays Boo Radley. I love that. 
Yeah. So it, it was absolutely fantastic to see To Kill a Mockingbird on a big screen in a theater. And it was really a pretty good showing of people this time nice. for this classic film. So I really enjoyed that. I encourage anybody if you're if you're you know like these classic movies, see them on a big screen. Fathom events and uh, Turner Classic Movies are running these things throughout the year. Next month in December, uh, they're going to be doing a uh, a screening of um, uh, oh my God. Uh-oh. I just I just lost it. <laughs> I, you know, I'm telling you, it's just been too wild of a weekend. That's it. Uh, you know, it, the Jimmy you. Stewart, the Jimmy Stewart. It's a wonderful uh, life. Christmas. Wonderful life. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was on the tip of my tongue. There you go. So uh, CTN <laughs> is going to uh, I mean, TCM. My gosh, I'm getting all these. <laughs> I'm really blowing it today. It's all right. Uh, it's all right. Get, get some more coffee, Dave. Fill up. Yeah, I know I need it. So uh, Turner Classic Movies is going to be uh, showcasing uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, on the big screen in December. So check, check in your area because they're playing all across the country. Very nice. Yes. And then uh, I watched the first episode of Tulsa King on Paramount Plus. This okay. is the new show with Sylvester Stallone. Yes. It's his first like television series wow and uh it was really good really enjoyed it. oh that's great to hear thank you yeah i really it's a total fish out of water i mean you know he play he plays a mafioso gangster who just got out of prison and the family he works for tells him he has tulsa he's like tulsa what the hell is tulsa you know and so he it's a complete fish out of water it's a terrific cast i would encourage anybody who who is interested to really give this a try tulsa king it was very there's you know funny stuff in there mixed with gangster stuff it's like it's it's like a comedy version of the sopranos oh that's great uh and uh, and I also had a chance to see a couple of episodes of Rogue Heroes, uh-huh. which is on. I call it Epic or Epic. What, what do you? What, how should I pronounce it? Epics. E- Epics. Yes. Yeah. So I think they're going to rebrand it as Lion Gates Plus, but it, they uh, should. They really yeah, should. Okay. <laughs> so so Epics. I watch Rogue Heroes. It's about. Um, it's World War Two uh, at North Africa, uh, uh, and, and it's a it's a period piece, but it's really well done. Uh, nice. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Now, we binged watched The English with Emily Blunt, which just dropped a few weeks ago on Prime. Yeah, Amazon Prime, and I got to tell you something, Al John. This is a beautiful six-part show wonderful i mean absolutely beautifully done i mean the cinematography i can't i can't all i can do is gush about the cinematography okay uh because it's so beautiful it's shot out in montana and wyoming on the great plains i mean the 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 vistas it's shot in widescreen it's just absolutely beautiful uh and the storyline I will tell you, you have to get through that first episode. The first episode is a little bit slow. It's a little bit plodding. It's, you know, you get about halfway, two thirds of the way through it. It starts to pick up and starts to make sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, but uh, beyond that, the rest of it is absolutely fantastic. So I encourage people to check out the English with Emily Blunt on Amazon prime. And then I'm really looking forward to this because it's dropping this coming Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. 
the Netflix series Wednesday. Yes. And it's about Wednesday Adams. The first four episodes are directed by Tim Burton. Yes. And I can't wait to see it. I read a review on it, which was very good in the Hollywood reporter. Uh, so, uh, check that out on Wednesday. So that's what I, that's all I've got. I mean, it's been such a busy week and weekend. It's craziness. Yeah. You're, you, you've been, you've been very busy, but, uh, Hey, look for me, it's been very simple, very quick. We finished, finally finished a handmaid's tale. Nice twist at the end. If you're into that wonderful. Um, but once again, very dark, very crazy. Uh, which I tend to go for. Uh, speaking of dark and crazy, The Good Nurse is a show on Netflix. It's a movie about the infamous caregiver implicated in the deaths of hundreds of hospital pa- uh, patients. I've been following this story uh, for for a long time, and my wife and I decided to give it a, a watch, and um, Jessica Chastain is great in this film. Uh, so please check it out. It's uh, intriguing, It's very and it's very sad, but, uh, you know, Good finally defeats evil, I will say. And we also saw on Netflix the documentary based on that film, and uh, it's crazy. It, you know, one of the most prolific serial killers. I mean, I think he had went through the system, Dave, uh, going from hospital to hospital, killed nearly 400 people. Wow. And wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Just because, you know, hospitals I, and I, I remember that, that in the news. Yep. And, yeah. you know, hospitals tend to cover up that kind of stuff, but there was a law that was passed um, because of this uh, where there needs to be some full disclosure and, and, and really clear checks on these people. But, uh, you know, just a very eye opening and, and sad uh, piece there. But, you know, once again, the good nurse, Jessica Chastain, definitely give it a thumbs up. She's great in it. Um, and that's all I saw this week. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Right on. And now I guess it's time for us to go ahead and get into Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Did you happen to check out? Did you happen to check out Empire Magazine's cover, Dave? No, I did not. Okay. Harrison Ford looks like a million bucks. Indiana Jones 5, they've got the world exclusive of the legend returning to the cinema. Harrison looks like a million bucks, and they have alternate covers that look very much like a uh, movie poster for Indiana Jones. It looks very much like um, uh, the Drew Struzan art, if you will, uh, awesome. that I'm in love with. So I'm looking forward to that. Of course, this film features a score by Rob, uh, by John Williams. And uh, Mads Mikkelsen's in it, uh, Phoebe Walker-Bridge, Antonio Banderas. It's going to be a big production. Of course, James Mangold is the director, and we're looking forward to checking out this film. I guess it's going to be coming out next year sometime. So, Uh, You know, while you were saying all that, I pulled up the cover. It's fantastic looking. I I mean, it's just a throwback to those great Indiana Jones films. I can't wait to see this. Yeah, absolutely. So we are ready for it for sure. It's a 1960s era New York City. Um, So I guess we're going to find out uh, June 30th of 2023 what the fuss is all about. Uh, From what I understand, it's pretty awesome. So So it's dropping in June of next year. Yeah. I you know I have a feeling next year is just going to be absolutely off the charts with movies in the theaters. I believe so. I believe it will yeah. be for sure. Well, speaking of uh, 
things hit, you know, hitting on all cylinders, I was going to say, you know, Andor uh, is still a great, great series. I'm trying to catch myself up, and I think I'm going to do that this week now that um, I'm taking some time off for the holidays. But they are putting this front and center ABC, FX, Freeform, and Hulu to present the first two episodes of the critically acclaimed Disney Plus series and or Star Wars show. And it's going to be great. I mean, people are going to see it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and available on Hulu December uh, 7th. And uh, I think this just goes to prove how much this series has done in terms of raising the Star Wars game for a lot of the fans out there. I, I thought they did a terrific job on this. I really enjoyed this series, um, and I can't wait for season two. Uh, yeah. And I think this is really interesting that they're dropping it on ABC and FX, uh, Freeform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and are they just dropping the first two episodes? So then if you want to watch any more, you got to subscribe to Disney Plus, right? That's it. It's so cinematic in scope. You know, yeah. this is a great preview uh basically a free trailer for or a free show for people to watch and get hooked to Disney Plus. So uh kudos to them for that synergy. It's awesome. Yeah. Well speaking of which uh one of my favorites of all time, Elton John, bids his farewell tour, Dodger Stadium to feature musical powerhouses Dua Lipa, Kiki D, Brandy Carlisle, one of my personal favorites on his final North American performance. Trailer for Epic Three Hour Concert event was revealed on Disney Plus. Dave, this is going to be amazing. Well, you know, we're going to try and watch some of this because they're they're broadcasting on Sunday night. You know, As which was this. last night when yep. you're you're listening to us. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, they uh, are broadcasting uh, the Sunday night show at Dodger Stadium on Disney Plus. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, this is another great reason to get Disney Plus because I mean they have these things that are happening. You know, uh, that you can't see anywhere else. And uh, with uh, Elton John, he played Dodger Stadium in 1975. Yeah. And here he is back. uh, And, you know, he did Friday, Saturday and Sunday night shows. Yeah. And uh, I guess I can call him a Disney legend because he really, I think, of course, I I mean, you know, Disney legend status already. Yeah. The the Lion King. I mean, for crying out loud. Exactly. I mean, he's done so much, but uh, Elton John, one of my all time favorites, looking forward to it. And this is a premium pay-per-view style event that they're hosting on the service and i love it when companies do these type of things because it just you know people get the service to get these special experiences um and so i'm looking forward to it for sure and uh man i think this is going to be one of uh many different concert events that disney's going to be doing because they did so well with the disney beatles special they did last year yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. I, I just I absolutely thought that was fantastic. Right. Well, animation uh, in all different shapes and forms. You know, I'm a big fan of Studio Ghibli and the Japanese animation style. And now Lucasfilm is teaming up to surprise fans on Disney Plus with a very short Zen, Grogu, and Dust Bunnies. Have you seen this, Dave? Have you seen it at all? I have not seen this yet. Okay. So this is really cool. I've seen a little bit of it um, this week, and uh, you know, I also saw a little bit of Disenchanted. I didn't want to talk about it because I hadn't finished it yet. But uh, Disney Plus shared a special surprise for fans uh, a couple days ago with Lucasfilm's Mandalorian original short, Zen, Grogu, and Dust Bunnies from famed Japanese animation studio Ghibli, 
which will premiere, well, it's out now on Disney+, Plus, and it's a hand-drawn animated short directed by Kasuta Kondo with music by Ludwig Gorison. So there you go. Uh, another great piece of handmade uh, handmade animation, Dave. And it looks uh, it looks like Studio Ghibli, all right? It looks fun. Well, they're they're a fantastic studio. I went, I I had a tour of that studio uh, quite a number of years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, and and met some of their animators. Uh, really a terrific group of people. And uh, and if you're ever in Tokyo, you have to check out uh the Studio Ghibli Museum. Nice. Which is you know incredible. If you're an animation fan, you will absolutely love this um, museum. Nice. We'll definitely check that out on Disney Plus. And you know, Dave, uh, one of my favorite stories to have been told time and time again and retold is A Christmas Carol. And now D23 members here on December 4th over there will have a special screening happening over at the AMC Theater at Disney Springs to see The Muppets Christmas Carol being re released. So tickets go on sale on the, uh, they're already on sale right now. So please check that out if you're a D23 member because uh, it's always fun to see these Christmas stories, especially the Muppets on the big screen. Oh, you got to see some of this stuff on the big screen. It's just, you know, like I was saying about It's a Wonderful Life earlier, you know, uh, it's like see these movies on a big screen. That's what they were made for. Uh, And and that goes for this uh, Muppets Christmas Carol, which is a great film. It is. And it's another great film to see alongside that when you get home is uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol that you worked on. So, uh, no, I did not work oh, on I Mickey's you worked Christmas. On Miss, Mickey's no, no, Christmas Carol, I did not. Like I, I started at the studio right at the tail end of that show. Okay, I was thinking uh, they were they were just fin- they just finished uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol when I when I got hired on uh, in the mid mid eighties. Well, that that so, uh, huh? that brings me to this. You know, it is Mickey and Minnie's birthday this weekend. That's right. And, you know, they do have that um, Mickey Mouse documentary about the uh, the beginnings of Mickey Mouse on Disney Plus that I'm going to be checking out this week. But um, can you can you give your thoughts as to why Mickey has resonated for so many years uh, with so many different generations of people, Dave? You know, I, I, I think to some degree he's he's the everyman, similar to Goofy was the you know, Goofy was kind of dubbed the everyman. You know, Mickey has, uh, you know, this uh, uh, mischievous playfulness to him uh, and he never ages, you know, and I think he's a very appealing design. uh, And uh, and also, you know, he took the public by storm because he was the first animated character to talk. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that just propelled him to stardom uh in 1928 you know and and it was really you know when when you think about it 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 was Walt's brilliance of forward thinking you know to to put sound to uh Steamboat Willie yeah uh and you know up until that point you know all the cartoons were just silent cartoons you know you if you were lucky to go into a theater you might have a piano uh, player, you know, playing some music to accompany uh, the cartoons. Uh, and if you lived in a city, you might have had, you know, a couple of uh, musicians playing, you know, or even a small orchestra. Uh, but um, I think that's a, a big part of it, you that's know. Awesome. Uh, and because he talked and was the first to talk, he eclipsed, uh, um, 
you know, everything else that was out there. And also I would point out that Walt was brilliant in jumping on Technicolor uh, and doing an exclusive deal because he was the only one doing color cartoons for a couple of years because of a, a, of a deal he struck with Technicolor. Yeah. That meant his competitors still were doing black and white cartoons. Yeah. A special feature um, and, and one that really put people in the seats. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. that's amazing. Well, once again, you know, happy, and, yeah. you know who doesn't like Mickey Mouse? I mean, Mickey Mouse is a global, uh, a globally recognized character. And, uh, and, and, you know, he's just got a great personality. You know, what's not to like? Absolutely. My kids love Mickey and I'm so happy. It's the very first time we presented Mickey Mouse to them. They were like, Mickey. I mean, they immediately loved it. So uh, there's that classical peel that never goes out of style. Mickey Mouse and Minnie, happy birthday to you because, uh, I mean, it's really special. So uh, speaking of special, we have a special talent, Corporal LeBeau on Hogan's Heroes. Uh, Robert Clary had passed away at the age of 96. The French actor and singer spent 31 months in a concentration camp, but he said he had no reservations about starring in a TV series about the Nazis. Isn't that a... Uh, an interesting fact there. Um, you know, I, I, I think this is really uh, pretty amazing because, uh, you know, A, he was the last surviving member of the Hogan's Heroes TV show. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I read his obituary, I have to tell you, I was blown away by this guy because he he lost 12 members of his family in in the um concentration camps uh during world war 2 in germany yeah. uh and you know uh at auschwitz and buchenwald yeah. uh and he didn't talk about it he didn't talk about the holocaust for many years uh but uh he you know and and it said uh and this is a quote of, from him for 36 years, I kept these experiences during the war locked up inside myself, he once said. But those who are attempting to deny the Holocaust, that he says, my suffering and the suffering of millions of others have have forced me to speak out. And so, you know, he he started going around um, uh, with the uh, Holocaust Museum. They sent him around the country to talk about his experiences. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, what a fascinating life this guy had and what a long life. I mean, for somebody to go through something as horrific as the concentration camps during World War II, you know, he lived to be 96 years old and had an amazing life as an entertainer. You know, Eddie Cantor had taken him uh, under under his wing and mentored him. Uh, he actually married one of Eddie Cantor's uh, five daughters. Wow. Uh, and uh, they made their home in Los Angeles. And, you know, really uh, an incredible life story there. Right on. Well, once again, I'm glad he was able to tell his story. It's important that uh, that that his story and the history um gets recorded and broadcast to a bunch of different people just so that they can learn, you know, if we don't learn from our history, uh, we're doomed to repeat it. So it's yeah. just really important. And, and you know, kudos out. to, to the Holocaust museum uh, and the Simon Wiesenthal uh, center uh, for doing oral history with all of these uh, Holocaust survivors. And, yeah. and, you know, they're becoming fewer and fewer uh, uh, around today. 
but uh, you know, they they've recorded all of these uh, as many stories as they possibly can, and and it's important uh, historical information and you know just important um, oral history. Right on. Uh, so kudos to him to finally speak up about it. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, Robert Clary, uh, rest in peace. And once again, go out there and check out Hogan's Heroes. It's one of the most classic TV shows you'll ever see. It's a you wonderful know, it's show. Still, it still holds up. Every it once does. in a while, I come across it yeah. and I'll watch a few episodes. It's just fantastic. It is. Um, it's a very very funny show, and uh, and it was a great ensemble cast. Yeah. Yeah, we have a. I have a friend of mine that works in the sales office, and he is a Hogan's Heroes fanatic. And every now and again, he'll quote the show, and I'll just laugh because it's like you know we're the only people that understand some of these references, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, because we're we, you know I watched it in reruns. That's what he did too. He still continues to watch. So, well, anyway, Dave, thank you once again. And if you have any shows and what's on your playlist, feel free to email us. We'd love to get your recommendations. Al John and Dave, Al John or Dave, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Skull Rock Podcast Interview Time. Well, Al John, we are back again uh, for part three of our conversation with uh, supervising animator Andreas Deja. And many of our listeners are going to know Andreas from uh, really some of the most popular characters from the renaissance of animation. And we left off last week talking about Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. And we were also touching on Scar from Lion King. And don't worry, we didn't jump over Aladdin and uh, um, uh, the animation that uh, Andreas did on Aladdin. Uh, But one of the things, Andreas, first off, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. And uh, our studio audience is just wild about having you uh, here. So uh, I, I, I think last week after we got off the air, you and I had a brief conversation and you mentioned uh, you really wanted to talk about some of the research trips. And I, and I thought we'd start out with that because the research trips were kind of new back then. Uh, they were really just kind of coming back into vogue, if you will. Uh, and so w- why don't we pick up on that first research trip that you went on? Yeah, it was just interesting for me, actually, just to find out recently, Dave, and I don't even know if if you know this, there wasn't even a research trip way back for 101 Dalmatians. Like people like Ken Anderson and Walt Perigord, they asked maybe to take a trip to London and do some research. And Walt said no. Wow. It was, it was in the budget. So we felt really honored when this whole thing started over in terms of being invited to go to other countries and do, do some local research. And uh, the, one of my favorites really was... Uh, we re- researched for Beauty and the Beast, and uh, uh, we had a false start on on the on the movie. Uh, we started actually uh, in London to do some storyboards with a local uh, studio, small animation studio there, headed up by Richard Purdom and his wife Jill. And the studio had hired them as possible directors for Beauty and the Beast because they wanted the movie to have a really big U- European flavor. So these Two were hired, and then a, a group of artists, including Glenn Keane, myself, Hans Bakker, Tom Cito, and a few others, we went over to London and got started at the Purdom Studio, started storyboarding and uh, starting to do some designs. 
And the interesting thing was, uh, before we got started, Jeffrey Katzenberg gave us a script uh, that had been written. And he says, I like this. I like this treatment. Don't change anything. Do this. Do this version. And some of us had so had some thoughts here and there, you know, maybe this won't work as well. This this might work. So we we had some doubts here and there about this particular script. Nevertheless, we went over there, started storyboarding, making a long story short, uh, sent some some reels back, some storyboarded sequences, and Jeffrey didn't didn't like them. And uh, so at that point, he said, "Why don't you guys come back and we start over here in Burbank with a new version, not this script, which he had liked so much." <laughs> and uh, so, but. And then we said, well, what about our research trip? Because we were supposed to do that, you know, after doing some, some work here at the Burnham Studios in London. And he said, no, no, you guys still go to France and do your research trip. So we did, having sort of bittersweet feelings because that all that work that we had done for a couple of months or, or so was thrown out. But that was not going <laughs> to spoil our research trip to France. So let me ask you this, Andreas. Uh, was was at that point when, when Jeffrey said, you know, you guys come back, but you're going to do your research trip and everything Were the Purdom still attached to beauty and the beast, or were they sort of having second thoughts about uh, the direction of the picture? You know what? Both. They okay. started to have things, second thoughts, but they they were still part of that research trip. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so they all went with it. It was just a short flight uh, to the Loire Valley from London, uh, you know, and then, uh, it was just being wined and dined, you know, through the Loire Valley, staying in beautiful places, visiting castles, drinking wine. It was just the, <laughs> it was that kind of research. Yes, but I, 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 you know, you're you're laughing and saying you're wined and dined and drinking fine wines and everything. Of course, you're going to be, you know, when in Rome, you know, uh, be like a Roman, right? Uh, yeah. But but this was serious business because all of you guys are artists. And you were soaking in the environment and you were doing sketches and you were looking at details and all of that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, cause as I recall from those research trips, which I didn't go on, but uh, everybody came back with, you know, a, uh, you know, a notebooks full of research. No, we, of course we, we did do some work. Uh, I think we saw every single castle in the Loire Valley and one is more magnificent than the other. Uh, it was just gorgeous. To walk through there, some uh, had guided tours. Some of them we were, we were just free to roam and sketch and and become inspired. Really, uh, yeah. as a character animator, uh, I felt like it was a big treat because I don't draw castles, I don't draw the architecture. There was there would be for layout and background people, but I still uh, we still went to museums too and and looked at uh, armor and and clothing and costumes. So. I did some sketching there as well, but it, yeah. it was, I, I felt like it was a big treat. It was just absolutely wonderful. But, but I mean, I think sometimes there's a notion from some people that, you know, research trips are a boondoggle, you know, it's a, it's a chance for a group of people to go, you know, on an African safari or go to the Noir Valley or, you know, go someplace, but, but it's really not a boondoggle. It really is an immersion into an environment that you are going to be animating a film about, right? Yeah, and in this case, in Beauty and the Beast's case, it really, I mean, that visit took you back in time and, and you're getting exposed to all these 
amazing castles and buildings. And it just gets you inspired. It gets you in the mood and all juiced up. Yeah. And, and those, and those, those castles are hundreds of years old. So there you're, you're, you're going into an environment that is the time period for the film that you're about to embark on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was one of my favorite shows. There, there were others uh, that followed like the one to Hawaii for Lilo and Stitch was not bad either. But the one for Beauty and the Beast has a special place. Sure, sure. So after that, you came back to Los Angeles, or did you go back to London to continue working with the Purdoms? No, we just went straight back to L.A. I think we went back to London to pack our things and uh, gather yeah. our suitcase, and then it was back to L.A. And then it was, for people like me, uh, the animators, it was a little bit slow going because we kind of were, were waiting to see where the story of Beauty and the Beast is now going, what, what the tr- what the treatment would be now. And um, and uh, it was sort of interesting to see that we really did almost like a left, well, yeah, like a left turn. And uh, it was fascinating to see, even though the story could have been, could have happened ages ago, 100, I mean, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, but uh, how contemporary the situations were and the yeah. characters. And I found that fascinating, you know, particularly with the, uh, Gaston, uh, thinking again, okay, he's in a movie uh, that is uh, a tale as old as time and all that. But nevertheless, we know this guy. We know people like him right now. You just go to the gym, to your fitness center, and (laughs) there they are, the Gastons checking themselves in the mirror, making sure that every muscle is just growing as they want it to, you know, and and, uh, constantly looking at uh, just adoring themselves. So, my research was really uh, in uh, local L.A. gyms, you know, to find Gaston. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Um, you know, and during that period, did you feel any sense of uncertainty? Because at some point, the Purdoms de- departed the picture. And there there was, I don't know if there was a brief gap. I don't remember there being much of a gap before Kirk and Gary came on. There was a brief uh, gap, uh, I would say a few weeks uh, might, might have been something like three weeks uh, yeah. with nobody at the helm, and then it was decided. Uh, but it was mutual. The Purdoms didn't want to be part of the the Burbank version of Beauty and, and, and the Beast, uh, right? And uh, so uh, it was a mutual parting. And then Kirk and Gary had never directed an animated film, so it was kind of a gamble that the studio took on them. They never did a feature. They were coming off of uh, Cranium Command, I think it was. Uh, was a, short, a couple yeah. of couple of little small projects, but this right. was their first feature. A full-blown musical feature, yeah. 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 So it and, was, and, and I do want to just say, uh, Dick and Jane, uh, excuse me, Dick and Jill Purdom were really nice people. Oh, they were. Uh, and, and, and I mean, they were wonderful, wonderful uh, animation professionals in London. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet them several times and chat with them. They were lovely people. And this really was just a mutual parting of ways. I I got the sense that they didn't want to move to Los Angeles to do a movie. That was a big uh, part of it. Yeah. 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 They're, they're just like staying at home and uh, working there. And if people have time to go on YouTube, I think. Some of the reels, uh, the commercials that the Purdoms did during the 70s, 80s, and I think early 90s uh, should be on YouTube. The, their work is fantastic. It's just oh, yeah. top-notch 2D work. 
Yeah, I mean they they were they were uh, you know like friendly rivals to Richard Williams. In, they were in London, you know. In, and, yeah, in those days there were like several great studios. Eric Goldberg had a studio, Pizzazz yeah, Pictures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was uh, there was uh, Dick and Jill Purdom. Uh, I think Harrison Bachelor early on. They had their place, so it was that that town, London, was buzzing uh, during the seventies, eighties, and early nineties with yeah. like great great duty work. And there still is a nice, vibrant animation community in London. There is. I think there's lots of stop motion being done right now. There's also 2D. Uh, yeah. Channel 4 uh, uh, usually sponsors a big Christmas special, a half-hour 2D Christmas special. So, yeah, it's still going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, once Kirk and Gary came on board, uh, the film actually started moving along. And, of course, you, you had uh, Howard Ashman and, and, and Alan Menken uh, who were you know, integral to, to the story of the film. Yeah, these guys are not just uh, musicians and composers. They're storytellers. I, I mean, the old saying that a, a movie song should move the story forward, shouldn't just be a pleasant song, but really should move the story forward and tell you something about the characters. These guys, they were the best, yeah. uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. They were just the best. Uh, by the time you get through the Gaston song in, in the pub where he's just uh, uh, singing, uh, of course, about himself, and yeah. he's, he's singing about his diet and 12 dozen eggs a day and all that, you know. By the time that song is over, you know exactly who this guy is. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and that's such a wonderful se- sequence. I, I I I think I remember Gary Trousdale saying that was the last great drinking song in a Disney animated film. <laughs> I'll agree to that. It's a, it's a classic for sure. <laughs> we know every word, and uh, trust me, uh, yeah, a few beers <laughs> swept back listening to that song. Let, let me ask you, Andreas, uh, uh, what was the rest of Beauty and the Beast like for you? Because I, I kind of recall uh, there was, you know, we, we, we were kind of in a place of, you know, at the beginning of that renaissance of animation. And there was some uncertainty going on still. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can recall people almost holding their breaths a little bit when that movie released and then when we started getting the notifications through the studio that the theaters were selling out evening performances and it becoming a date picture uh, mm-hmm. what 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 was going through your mind at that time yeah we had just come off the success of mermaid obviously which was a huge shot in the arm but you kind of wonder uh well talking about wonder are we a one-hit wonder or are we able to continue telling stories that connect with people, you know, and are we going to get teenagers back? And, and, uh, and all of that was, was a big question mark, uh, but it did happen. And uh, uh, yeah, people, people absolutely loved the movie. As far as me animating on it, I don't know if I touched on this uh, in part one or two, but uh, um, it was, Gaston was a very difficult character to animate because of the degree of realism that Jeffrey wanted because I started out uh, taking some inspiration from the storyboards uh, where he was drawn cartoony and he was the villain and he had a big jaw and overblown muscles. So I started to animate him that way. And I remember the first scene that Jeffrey saw, uh, it was it was doing the opening song with Belle because Gaston kind of jumps in and is part of that song. And uh, I think he, uh, as so often, 
sees his reflection in a, in a window somewhere and pays pays attention to that as he's singing. So I animated that scene, and Jeffrey says, "Well, the the acting is fine, but uh, he's not handsome enough." And I just I was astonished. I said, "Handsome? He's the bad guy, you know. Bad guys aren't handsome." He said, "No, no, he has to be, and uh, we have to re- re- revisit his uh, his look and design and all of that." And uh, I thought, "Oh my gosh." Does he have like a soap opera star kind of a guy in mind? You can't animate that. I mean, that can't be expressive. Yeah. So I was kind of pouty and uh, did some doodles of handsome guys. And I'm going, thinking like, if, 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 if this guy looks like a, like a Disney prince, I mean, there's, so, there's only so far you can go, go with the animation, the expression, the acting. And so I, w- I was messing with that for about a week or two. And then he called me into his, his office on the main lot. And he said, uh, I know you've been thinking about this. I just want to tell you that with Beauty and the Beast, we are telling the story and with a theme. And the theme is don't judge the book by its cover. And he was very clear on that. Very, very good, actually, uh, in laying this out for me. He said, on one hand, we, we meet the Beast and uh, he looks scary as heck. And, but we find out throughout the story that he actually has a heart of gold. He looks scary, but he has a heart of gold. On the opposite end, we have Gaston, who looks handsome, and we think maybe he should be the guy to marry Belle because he look, looks nice. But we find out through the story that he's completely into himself. He's a male chauvinist, and he even becomes a murderer at the end. Right. So the exact opposite qualities. And I understood that right away. And then uh, I said, okay, he has to be handsome. <laughs> and I said, but it's going to make it so much tougher to animate. And Jeffrey said, well, nobody said it was going to be easy. And that was, <laughs> that was the end of the meeting. <laughs> they took his day. You go to your office and figure that one out. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, when Jeffrey first came into Disney from Paramount, uh, there, there was certainly some skepticism from, from people in the animation department uh, because a lot of these guys coming in had really no experience with animation. What was your feeling by the time we got to Beauty and the Beast? Did you feel like Jeffrey really was understanding the process and understanding uh, the filmmaking in animation? No, I think I think by the time we did Beauty, um, I felt like Jeffrey had really grown into this thing called animated filmmaking, and he liked it. He liked to work with us. Uh, he, he he wasn't there the whole time each day. Uh, he came over as an at an average. What do you think? They have once or twice a week. Max. Yeah, I I would think. You know, even less. Yeah, exactly. Maybe once a week, once or twice a week. You know, depending uh, yeah. on what was going on and what decisions need to be made. You know, because but, but, you know he was he was part of the decision making of what was going into production, right? From from oh the yeah, absolutely, reels. yeah, absolutely. But he also turned out to be a great editor. He would come in and see what the story guys had done and he would see a story sequence and he would have specific notes. And we usually like in 95, 97%, we agreed with those notes, even if that meant redoing stuff and it was painful or or maybe we didn't have time for that, but we always did it. And and it was, it was always better. I think one of the reasons Jeffrey grew into this Disney thing is he had, uh, well, he still has them kids, uh, but his twins, uh, Boy and a girl, they were really young at that age, that Disney age, basically. Yeah. So he started taking home Disney films on 16 millimeter and screened them for his kids. 
and uh, from Snow White on Pinocchio Bambi and, and experience those films again with his kids and uh, saw them through his kids' eyes. And I think that kind of hooked, got him hooked. Yeah. I mean, he did his homework is really what it boiled down to. Absolutely. And, and, and Absolutely. I think I think you have to respect that. You know, um, I, I, yeah. I, I think, I think he, he really immersed himself in the animation legacy of Disney up to that point. And he also saw that his take on animation, which was slightly modern, uh, even though we had classical themes and classic stories, but the, the, the types that he wanted should be characters that audiences could connect with now that they would know somebody like Gaston or know somebody like Bell or Jafar or, or whoever. I think that I think that's what he brought to, to the table. Uh, current types of characters that people really connected with. Yeah, yeah. And and from from Beauty and the Beast, you you went right into uh Aladdin. Yep. And, and, that's what and, happened. And, and, uh, and doing Jafar and Jafar was a, a very different character from Gaston. Gaston was, you know, uh, a gregarious, you know, self-involved character, whereas Jafar seemed like he was uh, much more calculating and reserved. Yeah, uh, that was his strength, I think. Uh, and I didn't know that going uh, getting started on that movie, how I should play him. Because I look at the uh, storyboards and, and, of course, the animation of the genie that Eric Goldberg had done, and everybody seemed to be so bouncy. You know, Aladdin is pretty animated. There's the carpet who's animated. The Abu, the monkey, is very lively. The genie, of course. And we're like, how am I going to play Jafar? Maybe um, maybe he shouldn't be so bouncy. Uh, maybe if I if I hold him back, in his actions and in his acting, and you see him more scheming and coming to a conclusion, usually a bad one, of course, then maybe that could create some contrast to all this bounciness that you would have with all the other characters. And, and, then, and Yeah, and that was a nice juxtaposition, really, of, of Jafar against those other characters. I think the audience liked to see him think and plot, and I certainly liked animating that, even though you deal with more subtleties, you know, you don't have anything broad to animate. It's all within a pose or two. You know, I, I remember doing one scene. I don't know if you remember, Dave, uh, where Jasmine uh, runs into Jafar's uh, headquarters and she accuses him of uh, arresting Aladdin and what's going to happen to him. And he very sort of gleefully tells him that he's going to be killed and all that. Uh, and uh, she runs out in shock. And um, um, in the in, during that conversation, the the parrot actually had been sort of uh, squeezed into the door frame behind Jafar, so he he got himself loose. Uh, this is all after Jasmine uh, had run off, and the parrot lands on Jafar's shoulders and said, "So, how did it go?" And Jafar, in a very subtle way, just at the slight roll of the head, and he said, "I think she took it." rather well and i just loved i knew i got him right then and there because it was in the voice you know and i knew this is all about subtlety and 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 uh i just knew i got him at that point did, did you take anything from the voice actor oh do, yeah do, do you do you I, I i should make that a broad question you know on jafar on uh you know Gaston. 
certainly on Scar. I mean, honestly, anytime I watch The Lion King and I see Scar, I immediately flash on Jeremy Irons, you know, because he's such a brilliant actor and and his, his, you know, just the way he speaks and the inflection of the word. I mean, it's just really amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, people probably know this, but uh, at least the animators were uh, listening uh, here. Um, they had a good voice, really is half the work and or half the work is done basically for you because uh, if, if it's an inspiring line uh then you know how to animate that you don't have to say yeah. you're ask yourself well i could animate it like this or i could have this version or maybe that version yeah. if the line is good and clear and reflects what the character is thinking uh, the work is almost done it's just a joy to to animate that yeah um you know uh, on Aladdin, uh, to me, we were, uh, you know, there was that huge success off of uh, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, it was the first animated feature to break $100 million at the box office. I mean, I, you know, there were dozens of roses being delivered to the, uh, to the, you know, our building, if you remember. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so there, there was an exuberance going into Aladdin. Uh, and, uh, and it was a very different picture. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a much more cartoonier picture, if you will, uh, and, and faster paced, more slapstick, uh, involved. Um, uh, but it was still, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and, and, and telling the story via song. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there were times where I thought maybe this is too cartoony. Uh, maybe. We don't have the depth of character in this. Maybe this is more of a Warner Brothers type of humor. I just wasn't sure early on. Yeah. And uh, I remember uh, being like shocked at one point uh, early on because my assistant, Kathy Bailey, she yeah. came running into my room and she says, guess what? I said, what? And she says, the genie, they're going to have the genie turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I said, what? What does that have to do with the story of Aladdin? So I run over to the storyboards in the hallway. Not only Arnold Schwarzenegger, and all kinds of characters you know, from nowadays. And I'm like, they can't do that. It's going to date the movie. Oh, my gosh. You know? So uh, I, I kind of had to see the animation to, to buy off on that. Because yeah. we, we just don't do satire like this at Disney. Or we hadn't done it. You know, so... Uh, Shock turned then into, into uh, I, was, I was almost giddy the way the genie was doing all that, the way Eric animated that. And then I thought, okay, it's going to have that kind of flavor. The genie is all about that. And, I, I, uh, I think the only, the only concern I had, and I still do, is will that hold up 50 years from now? You know, yeah, the, you know what? Some, people the, say, some people say that uh, even now, if kids, when kids watch the movie, they don't know. Who, who these people are that the genie is turning into, but who cares? It's all funny. Right. You know? right. And so it's going to take on its its own modern life, you know, with the kids not knowing, like you said. You know, it's like watching uh, Donald Duck's autograph hound. Uh, yeah. And, and all the caricatures of all of the movie, the Hollywood movie stars from that time period. Mo- most people today wouldn't know who they are. I mean, we do because we're film buffs and we've watched a lot of those movies and things like that. But most people today, 
would have a hard would be hard pressed to know who was who in right. that cartoon. But the cartoon holds up well because you know that there's some kind of a celebrity. Exactly, and they. This was not a, the first time where this situation o- o- uh, occurred. I uh, had heard that when they were doing Jungle Book, the original one from '67, uh, that there were some critics who said, "Well, when we see Baloo the Bear, we really see Phil Harris, who was very famous then, and and the Tiger is really George Sanders. All we can think of, of is George Sanders. So people were thinking even then that the Jungle Book would be dated for that." But now, who cares? His voices are so great, you know. And, yeah, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, you know, fifty or hundred years from now, uh, the genie, it, nobody's going to know really remember who Robin Williams was necessarily, but the the character embodies his voice and makes the character who he is, and the character stands on its own. Absolutely, if it's if it's funny and well done. It, at a certain time, it'll 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 be for the ages, basically. Uh, what do you remember most about uh, working on Aladdin? And did you go on a uh, uh, a trip for Aladdin? Was there was there a uh, a research trip? There really wasn't a research trip for that movie. I remember Rasul, uh, head of layout. Uh, I think he was from Iran. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. I think he went back home and did some research. Uh, but I think he was the only one. There was not really an official research trip for uh that of the the, the departments uh, it, it, but, it was uh, it, it was more it was more about uh al hirschfeld's design aesthetic yeah uh, his caricature yeah. aesthetic and the, it was also about persian art uh which exactly. there was an abundance of books on yeah you know so people could really study that and uh uh I think I remember halfway through the film where we had a lot of footage in final color or, or ready to, to look at. I thought that the artwork and the backgrounds were so stunning and really the best we had done up to that point that I actually wrote a letter to the background department and basically from the animators. I, I had the animators sign the letter too, but it was very official. It wasn't an email. It was just a, letter saying how grateful we are and how these artists, these background people ha- are really outdoing themselves and that we think, the animators, that these backgrounds are as good as anything from Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It, yeah. It, they just have arrived at that level. Yeah. And I think I think it made them feel good. <laughs> what, what else do you remember from uh, working on Aladdin? What stands out to you? You know, Dave, just the, the contrast from my previous assignment, Gaston, that with Jafar, I could I could be free. <laughs> you know, I could I could do so much more stuff because yeah. he has a face like a mask. You know, realism is not is not a, a big part of him. Even though you know when he, he walks or he moves, all that stuff has to have weight and and look real. But just to make him talk and uh, uh, being ex- ex- expressive, I could do so much further with him. And I didn't have to be so careful. You know what his nose looks like or the eyes are from a certain angle. So it, it was a lot easier from that point of view. I you could even in, invent new facial expressions because you felt that way in that in that moment, based on the dialogue, of course. So I I felt like I could really roll up my sleeves and uh, just have some real real fun with this guy. Yeah, and, and then uh, and then from Lion King, I, uh, excuse me, from from Aladdin, uh, you really went on to Lion King. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and that, and again, you, you know, one, two, three in a row of very different pictures. Cause you went from this, you know, caricatured human character of Gaston to a more cartoony, but you know, scheming Jafar. And now you're going to a quadruped and, and those are, those, that's, that's a challenge for any animator, right? I mean, doing quadrupeds. And I, I found this out very early on because uh, for a character like Gaston or for Jafar, who are humans, you can act your scene out in front of the mirror, you know, or if they do a certain hand gesture, you can act that out and see what the hand does in perspective and then then draw that. You can research it. Well, you can't do that <laughs> with a four-legged animal because there are no hands, basically. Um, they're on all fours. And then you are much more, actually totally, you're focused on the overall body uh, position, the body attitude, the the tilt of the head, the face. Those are the important things. You don't have the hands to help you with with the acting. There were some scenes where, when Scar is sitting and it was a close up, you can do something. Uh, you know, he could raise his his paw to his forehead and say, "Oh, I said too much, oh, little Simba." You know, so he could do something human like that, but only in certain close-ups. You know, and I was just about to say that as you started to explain that, because, you know, I immediately go to the scene where uh, Scar is at the entrance to the cave and he's, he's sitting on the ledge uh, and it's the whole business with the mouse uh, where he, he grabs the mouse, right. You know, because that's a great example of a scene where you actually gave his front paws the sense that they were hands. That that there was arms and hands in some of the gesturing he did uh, with the dialogue, which really I think adds so much to the scene. Yeah, and and again, you have to be very careful the way you you draw that paw, doing something human, doing human motions. You know, you have to we have to always remember the structure of a paw is not like a human hand, so you have to find a way that. Where it still is a paw, but it, it's doing a human gesture, yeah. and uh, it's challenging. But it, I also found it a lot of fun. The way he's holding the the mouse at the beginning is like squeezed between the like the tail between two two of his uh, uh, well fingers, for lack of a word, toes or whatever. And uh, so it, it's it retains the shape of of a paw, but he is holding that little mouse up and looking at it and talking yes. to him. So yeah, it's yeah. A little, so it's a brilliant, brilliant sequence, I think. Uh, and, it, and it really, to me, showed Scar's personality, like, really deeply, you know? Yeah, because he's sort of sympathizing with the mouse. Uh, uh, he, uh, we, we, I mean, we just find out that he's not happy. There's something on his mind, you know, he's not a happy camper. Yeah. He's like pitying, pitying him, himself. It was a literal game of cat and mouse. <laughs> very good i had to put that yes, in there yes yeah. it was thank you al john <laughs> you know, the the uh uh question i was going to ask you about scar is uh that that's a character where you know did you get mannerisms from jeremy irons who did the voice and were you there for those recording sessions i was and yeah. um in those early sessions uh I kept staring at his face, wondering if there is a way to make that lion, this evil lion, look a little bit like, like Jeremy Irons. And uh, 
so I got some some uh, tapes, of course, that I could study where he's doing the dialogue. I got some photos, uh, some stills that I could study. And uh, actually, my my very first drawings I did of the character uh, started to look like Jeremy Irons. You know, he has these dark circles under his eyes. There is that lidded look in his eyes. Uh, there's also a certain mouth configuration that uh, just looks British, for lack of a better term. Uh, and uh, also, I elongated his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mufasa's uh, head is more horizontal. He has that big jaw. Uh, Scar has a very, very sort of thin, small jaw. So different qualities. And uh, I remember uh, we were actually in London recording uh, some more of Jeremy Irons' dialogue. And I had just finished a sequence uh, where Scar is setting up Simba before the stampede. You know, you stay here. Your father has a marvelous price for you, all of that stuff. So I had that in pencil test with me on tape. So this will be the first animation he would see, uh, you know, done to his voice. So we popped it in. And I remember him staring at the monitor. He says, oh, my God, he looks like me. And I said, well, I hope that's okay with you because it's on purpose, you know? So he, he got a big kick out of that. Awesome. Awesome. How was he to, to, to be with and, and to, to talk with about this? You know, um, he was, he was amazing. He was just one of the guys, basically. Mm-hmm. He yeah. put yourself immediately on everybody else's level. There was no, no diva treatment or, or attitude or, or, he would just say something and then ask me, how was that? Should I say that? I said, this was fantastic. It was great. <laughs> keep, keep going. There was actually one, one uh, episode that I, that I want to talk about, actually at that same recording session in London later on, where some, something happened, something very interesting happened. Um, so he was recording all his dialogue for the fight with Simba, the confrontation, and then uh, yeah, the ending, basically. Yeah. And... Uh, um, so we did a whole afternoon, or almost a whole afternoon, with that in some small studio in London. And uh, the sound engineer comes on. He said, guys, wait, 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 before we break it up, uh, I want to play some of it back to you because I think we're going to have an issue here. And we go, what? And so he plays play some of the tracks back, some of the readings, and there seemed to be a little growl, like, like underneath his dialogue. And it wasn't Jeremy Irons trying to be a lion or growling as he's talking. It was his stomach. He had an empty stomach and it was growling. And wow. it, was in the, it was in the track and we couldn't use any of it. Wow. Because you cannot just take that out. No, no. He was I'm... in it. So he apologized. He said, I didn't have lunch. I'm so sorry. I was looking forward to having dinner with my wife. So he called his wife. He said, honey, uh, we're going to have a, a late dinner Um explained what had happened and they brought in a pizza and cookies and apples and <laughs> whatever to have something in his stomach so it settled down we had to do the whole thing over again. it was a very late session but of course the actor who he is he did it brilliantly the second time around too yeah when you were recording him did you feel that he he it was like he was he a one-take wonder was he one of those people that could do a line and it was like my god that's it or you know did you have to go through a couple of uh, iterations they they always ask for sure a, 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 they, they always just for safety you know yeah, and, coverage but, you got but, coverage right but i think you're right i would call him like a one-take person 
his first readings were pretty pretty darn nice yeah and, and rich because he under he just understood that character he brought you know what he did he brought an intelligence to the character scar is not dumb you know he's, right. he's smart he has his henchmen doing the dirty work the hyenas he, he plucks things out and uh uh and and the villain who is who is smart, I think, is even more dangerous. Sure, and, and that's why I like animating them. Yeah. What do you remember most about being on Lion King? What what stands out to you as a a, a big memory? Well, uh, two things: just the joy of the assignment, because I didn't think I would get to another villain again after having done two. So um, I remember early on. Uh, you know, looking at storyboards, thinking like maybe I sh- maybe I should ask to do Simba or the hyenas or something different because surely it's going to be somebody else's turn to do the villain Scar. And then early on, word got around that the studio is considering and even had Jeremy Irons over for some reading, you know, of uh, some Scar lines. And so he it looks like he was going to be the voice actor. And I thought, oh man, this is just too good to be true, but. Uh, I had just done two, so I went to see um, uh, Rob and um, uh, the, co- the, the co-director. Ro- Ro- Roger. Roger. Ro- Rob and Roger, yeah, exactly. And, and Rob Minkoff, yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, no, no, that's I, went, right. I went into their office and I said, I know I have just done two villains and I don't know who you have in mind. I, I just want to throw this out to you guys. I think I can do something with this character concept and Jeremy Irons' voice. I close my eyes and I see things. I just want to tell you that. And then Rob just looked at me and said, well, we kind of had you in mind anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, let's go. <laughs> really? I mean, they didn't, they didn't want to string you along and say, well, we'll think about it, Andreas, and we'll get back to you. <laughs> they could have. They could have let me sweat a little bit, but they didn't. That's fantastic. Uh, from from the Lion King, uh, obviously, when the Lion King released, that was, uh, uh, I mean, a major uh, success. It was it was sort of the pinnacle. It was the stepping stone from from uh, Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and then Lion King. In that order, uh, box office wise, it just sort of blew the doors oh, yeah. off. Uh, it. Uh, what was it like coming off of Lion King and doing uh, Mickey on Runaway Brain? Did did you feel like that, that was a a, a, vaca- a vacation for you? No, not at all. Uh, it was just switching gears. You know, we had just done Lion King. It was a huge hit, uh, bigger than anybody would have ever had imagined. So, considering you know, how troubled it was, yeah, yeah, right? because I, remember. Okay. Uh, that movie was done, Lion King was done parallel to Pocahontas. Correct. We had two units for the first game, you know, so we had more time to animate. Uh, it wasn't just one year to animate it, which, which was always really short and stressful. So the studio said, we're going to break you guys up in two and all that. So, um, so, so yeah, uh, coming on to Mickey after that, um, it was just the responsibility to do Mickey justice. That's all I could think about, you know, that you want to do him as best as you can, but also, you know, in a way that people know Mickey Mouse. And then the question quickly comes up, uh, well, Mickey changed so much over the years, which Mickey are we going to use for this short? You know, there's the the, the, the early Mickey, the up, up iWorks, of, of course, the from the black and white shorts, uh, then the Freddie Moore, who refined him, 
and then he became more graphic during the 1950s. So which one? And we all looked at the old shorts, and uh, we all kind of agreed that the late 30s, early 1940s really had a Mickey that was really alive, that where the proportions were super appealing. So we so we tried to use that model for our short. He was very dimensional. It, it yeah. was. Yeah. It's sort of the Fred. It's the Fred Moore, the 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 Saucer's Apprentice, Mickey. Absolutely, absolutely. yeah, yeah. That's what we're trying for. Yeah. And, and did you work on that exclusively in Los Angeles? Because I know that short uh, w- was being done over at the Paris Studio, or at least part of it was, mm-hmm. uh, and then it came back to Los Angeles. But you did everything in Los Angeles, right? No, I went over there. <laughs> oh, oh, you Again. weren't. You, you well, did go over to the Paris I was, Studio. Yeah, okay, I was there for seven months. Yeah. Ah. Was, okay. It was a huge perk, you know. But then uh, once you're over there and they rent a beautiful apartment for me right on the Ile Saint-Louis, like r- around the corner from Notre Dame, and it was a dream. It was, it was a dream, really. Yeah. But then then, then again, you, you, you had to work. You had to go to work like everybody else in the morning <laughs> and leave, leave Paris outside, you know, and yeah. do sightseeing or it, all did that. You- did you enjoy those eight months? Did you have a chance to go back to your hometown, visit your family or anything like that uh, while you were there? I did. Good. I did once or twice. Yeah. And I had them visit too, to, to come to Paris, some of my family members. Uh, but um, I also made a lot of French friends uh-huh. uh, that are still my friends now. And uh, of course we uh, kept in touch. Uh, so it was just a really nice experience. The, the interesting thing was the studio really sent me over there along with a few others to teach this group of French animators, like the Disney way. Yes. To, yes. Uh-huh. Disney yeah. procedures, you know, even yeah. it was, it wasn't a feature film yet. It was, it was a short film, but basically, basically telling them this is how we do things. And right. you know what? We, we basically didn't have to, these guys were so good and they were such great, yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great animators. Yeah. Yeah. With great integrity, it wasn't like I had to go over everybody's Mickey scene and redraw it because they didn't know how to draw Mickey right. They did. Yeah. They, they had done their homework too, you know. So it was just a joy to work with them. Yeah. Uh, from from there, uh, I know Runaway Brain came back to Los Angeles for completion uh, because yeah. I, I got I I jumped on. Uh, I think it was like three quarters finished when I jumped on to help get it finished. Uh, but you uh, you then uh, hooked up with uh, Ron and John, uh, uh, Ron Clemens and, and, John, and John Musker uh, for the Hercules picture. Exactly. Uh, that actually started in Paris. Uh, I was in touch with Ron and John. And the first thing they asked me uh, before any casting questions would come up, they said, you know what, uh, I'm going to ask you for, for a favor. We need a pencil test. Because we are sort of uh, casting voices right now for the movie Hercules, and we would really like Jack Nicholson for Hades. And uh, I, we think when we have a meeting with him, we'd like to show him a pencil test with his voice. So hopefully he get he gets sold that way. So they took a line from his, one of his movies from A Few Good Men uh-huh. that has a little, bit, a little bit of language in it, actually, which was kind of funny. <laughs> and... Uh, and and then John Musker sent me a couple of sketches, and he had Hades at that time like a, like almost like a Julius Caesar, you know. Uh, his he had, he had a collar that was that was burning. It wasn't his hair that was on fire; it was more his collar. And uh, he was doing the dialogue. He was playing with a little flame, 
kind of bouncing back and forth between his fingers and uh, and sort of had that that wide grin uh, that Nicholson has. And so I, I did do, do this, this test. And then I asked later, how did it go? And they said, well, he liked the test and he brought his daughter. He was, she was dressed as Snow White. She was just a little girl at the time. And we uh, took him through the, the story of the film, showed the pencil test. Everything looked fine. And then the agents started to talk later and they just couldn't strike a deal. Right. So Nicholson was out and uh, they had to move on. Wow. That would have been interesting if it was him. Yeah, it would have been a very yeah. different character. That's the thing. A voice influences a, a character so much. You get a different actor yeah. and it becomes a different character. And I think same with animators. You know, if, if uh, coming to that point, uh, us 2D animators, we are so different from each other. If I had animated the genie in Aladdin, it wouldn't be just a little bit different. It would be completely different and not as good as Eric's because he was the guy to really should have done this and uh, or, you know, the right guy for that, that assignment. But, uh, uh, or if Eric had done Jafar, it, he would have done a completely different job with it. It is that personal and in the individual. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely is. It, it, I mean, a big part of this is casting, and you have to cast the right artist for the character, um, and, and it, it makes a huge difference. Uh, but you did a pencil test of Hades, but you ultimately on on Hercules, you did the adult Hercules character, which is really kind of a throwback to Gaston as far as human qualities go, but this was really the hero. Yeah, and you know, I asked for that, that uh, assignment because Ron and John said, well, Hades, you know, you're the villain, Meister. Uh, you want to do him? <laughs> and and I said, you know, guys, this is a great honor. And I really meant it. But uh, I said, if I do like another villain, um, I I just might start repeating myself. With, you get, with you get typecast. You get t- yeah, typecast. You get, uh, I, you, know, you get a little typecast. And uh, uh, I mean, it's crazy to turn a villain down, but... I just didn't want to run into that where I just uh, do expression that Scar had or Jafar or something like that. I just wanted to do a whole different assignment. So I asked actually to do adult Hercules and I'm glad I did because it, it uh, was a different challenge. And even though he wouldn't get all the, all the laughs in, in the film, you know, cause he was a sincere, shy um, guy. So that, there are those qualities, which I had not animated yet. So I really, uh, jumped at it and I was really happy that uh, I got to do it was a chance it was a chance for you to stretch and to grow yeah change change uh, of pace yeah do something different um Mm -hmm. uh, did did you go on a research trip for uh Hercules did you guys go we did you did go over to Greece didn't you we did go to Greece and went to through museums and sketch Greek statues and and all of that and that was actually very helpful because uh Designing the character of Hercules was, at the beginning at least, extremely difficult because Ron and John had hired British illustrator and caricaturist uh, Gerald Scarf. Right. And his style is amazing. It's very wild and spiky and eccentric. And uh, all the other animators, they had all had finished their design work based on Gerald Scarf's aesthetics, you know. So yeah. even Meg, who's sort of an edgy character and they're sort of, edgy qualities in her face and the way she's drawn and the fates of course and Hades. I mean, all these characters really could 
be influenced by uh, Gerald Scarf's style. And, and then there's Hercules. You know, he was this inexperienced, innocent guy who wants to prove himself. And I just couldn't couldn't do that with that character. Yeah. So I went uh, and Gerald Scarf was in Burbank at the time. He had an office. And I went into his office. I said, they're asking me to set the design for the character. We don't have one. Even when you draw it, you know, to, talking to Gerald Scarf, I said, you draw him either super real almost like a photograph or very caricature with the big neck and the tiny uh, face. And I said, I, it has to be somewhere in the, in the middle. So then both of us on the same sheet of paper drew Hercules. He drew a little bit of the hair. I drew the nose. So it, it was this combo drawing, but we, we, we both agreed that we should probably go back and remember what a Greek typical statue looks like and caricature yeah. A classic statue. So that's basically what we did, and that that one drawing be, became the model for Hercules. That's fantastic. So really, I, I, it was it, it was a mutually agreed upon because you know he he's really an illustrator, uh, mm -hmm. and you're an animator. So you you had to have something that you could animate. I had to animate it. It yeah. had to also also be in line with the personality, but it, I also had to have hints of stylizations because it was a start going to be a stylized film all the all the characters were stylized so i did little graphic cheats like his jaw was this this sort of almost a circle mm -hmm. and his ears were also like a little spiral so they weren't really real ears yeah so i got but, some but, but it had it had the flavor of greek art yes yeah, and a know, little bit of joe scott as well yeah sir certainly uh, what do you remember mm -hmm. most about Hercules? Again, dealing with subtleties. Um, you know, there are some fight sequences, which I, most of them were animated by other animators in my, in my crew, because I focused on his re relationship with Meg, you know, the, the personality scenes. So you, you deal with subtleties. And uh, uh, I remember we had uh, uh, an, an actor actually acting out Hercules' parts as there was an actress who came in, who acted out Meg's uh, parts. And so I would look at, at those videotapes and, uh, and then make my notes from that and say, okay, I can do this piece of action and that thing that he did there, I, I don't really like, I don't really need that. But basically do my thumbnail sketches, my planning sketches based on the video performance. And, uh, and that, that, that was really helpful because it was then, it, it was, I mean, the performance had been given by an actor, but it was my choice of what to use and what, what not to use. Which is what video or live action reference is all about in animation. It's yeah. not for rotoscoping. It's really just for reference. Right. And uh, and just for our listeners, uh, uh, live action reference has been used since, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it, it's a valuable thing. It's a, it's a valuable tool but it has to be used properly. You you can't you can't just trace over live action. You, it doesn't work that way. That you you get a uh, a mess uh, like uh, some of the rotoscope features that were done uh, back in the eighties. You know. Yeah, you have to be really careful with it. You have to put your own point of view into the scene. If you just trace uh, what the what, what the live actor has done, you end up with very odd looking animation because. Real humans have a way of shifting their weight back and forth for seemingly no reason. Um, in animation, you can't do that. 
you have to either hold still or you or you move. You know, you can't have this constant little shift. And that makes it very, very eerie looking. Yeah. So you have to make choices like that. Yeah. Um, off of Hercules, you did some work on one of the segments, Rhapsody in Blue, in Fantasia 2000. And how did I that did come, because how, how did that come about? Um, I saw the storyboards that Eric Goldberg had done uh, for that se section, Rhapsody in Blue, and loved them. Again, very Hirschfeld influenced, uh, and I thought, gosh, it would be so much fun to animate. So I had a quick conversation with Eric in the in the hallway, and he says, "Oh, I'd be happy to give you a section, absolutely." And uh, I was just thinking about uh, maybe doing two scenes or something like that, one or two scenes just to try out that that style. So doing the handout, he has this whole section, several scenes in it. There was a little monkey and a guy with an, with an organ, he was playing the organ, and there was a businessman with his, with his overbearing wife. Uh, so it was, it was a whole character set up, almost a crowd scene. And there were several scenes in a, in a row. It was a whole package. And what happened that winter, I had the flu. So... I was feeling miserable <laughs> physically, thinking like, oh my gosh, Eric gives me this, all this pile of scenes. Uh, I, just, I just have to get through it. You know, uh, I don't get the flu ever, but that time I did have it. And I just uh, worked myself through it, felt better, of course. Uh, and uh, just loved it, absolutely loved it. I, I just love that whole short. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful and brilliantly done. Um, and, and you also uh, animated Mickey in the uh, the host sequence or the opening sequence. Uh, that's Mickey running up to uh, James Levine, uh, yes. a la a la exactly. Mick, Mickey and Stakowski in the original 1940 Fantasia. Yeah, I think we wanted to pay tribute to to the uh, vintage Fantasia and have a little Mickey scene like that in there. And uh, uh, again, me having done some Mickey animation before that came to me, and I was, of course, thrilled to do him again, you know, was an, was an honor. Yeah, that was, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, it felt, you know, when I look at your credits, it feels like Fantasia was a little bit of a respite of, uh, and, and I know it was a lot of work that you did, but it, it seems like it was a little bit of a nice respite coming off of Hercules and before you really got into Lilo and Stitch because you did Fantasia and you also did some visual development work on Emperor's New Groove. I did when it was called Kingdom in, in the Sun. And, oh, so, uh, so you were doing work on it when it was Kingdom in the Sun? When Roger was still yeah, attached I actually animated, to it. Uh, Roger when, Alice Roger, was still uh, Alice was directing. Was yeah. Right. And uh, he had this vision of Maya culture and uh, the concept of the character that uh, I was going to animate was the villainess. Uh, Isma uh, was fantastic. Uh, so her motivation at that time was um, that she is a sorceress who keeps herself alive. She can do a little bit of magic. She knows some potion, you know, that keeps her going. But what she really wants is to be young and beautiful again. She, and she can't do that by herself. So she makes a deal with a demon who has who had been locked into inside a mountain uh, at the beginning of time by the sun god. And uh, she knew this. And she makes a deal with this demon and uh, basically Basically, she says, if you can give me my youth back, my beauty back, then I will, then I will set you free. 
you know? And I, that concept to me sounded just awesome, you know? All about vanity, you know, and uh, uh, all about, kind of modern too, about facelifts and, you know, yeah. being young and beautiful again. So I really liked that angle. I, I loved uh, the, the casting. Eartha Kitt uh, was uh, just, I mean, what a unique voice. There's no, no voice like hers. Yeah. So it was just a lot of fun to animate that. And uh, Sting had written a bunch of songs. And one song was called Snuff Out the Light, uh, where she is uh, in, the, in the bowels of the, the palace and doing this dance macabre with these skeletons and mummies and dreaming about being young and beautiful again it was her, her big song. So I, I actually animated that. And Alice, Alice Cooper in Florida I did a few scenes also for that sequence. But we were just about finished when word came, came to us that uh, the version uh, of the film that they had at, at that time wasn't really working and they were going to start over again. So we put our pencils down. And that was that. And and Lilo and Stitch obviously was was getting going. Before we get into Lilo and Stitch, I I want to save that for our next part. Okay. okay? So I'm going to say at this point, uh, Andreas, thank you so much. Uh, th- this is such enlightening conversation, and hearing the and and our and our audience is going nuts. Uh, so <laughs> I, I I just want to say thank you so much for for being here again, and we're going to pick this up again next week. Uh, and uh, and when you come on, I'm going to have a little surprise for you. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Once again, I feel like I could sit back and listen to Andreas speak forever because he's got so many awesome stories. And it's uh, just crazy that we've got him for part three this week. Just another awesome podcast. Yeah, you know, he he like I've said time and time again, he's an incredibly nice guy, very gracious, very giving. Uh and uh I just love chatting with him. Uh it, it it's you know, it, it it's just a great uh success story. Uh and also and, and by the way, I put up a picture of myself with Andreas and Jorn Klubin. I yeah. like to say they're the European contingent, you know, <laughs> uh, and you know, Jorgen is, is, uh, uh, is from Denmark and, uh, um, uh, Andreas, uh, was born in Poland, but raised in Germany. Uh, they're both Americans, uh, in my book, uh, but they're, they're the European contingent. <laughs> That's right. The European contingent. I love them both. And I'm, yeah. I'm so grateful that uh, we had an opportunity to chat with him for part three. And guess what? Next week, they'll be back for more. Andreas back for yeah, another I mean, week. We're continuing Andreas Deja Month here on the Skull Rock Podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you for that. Thank you for that Casey Kasem-esque outro. Uh, by the way. If you love Disney and pop culture, let me get my radio voice. Uh, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform as well. Hey, look, give us those likes, give us the subscribes, and give us those five-star reviews if you believe we've earned it. We would love it. Don't forget to follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out the show archive at uh, our website, SkullRockPodcast.com. And we don't want to forget our cool friends at the Old Mill Press because it is Christmas time. So be sure to check that out as well in our show notes. Dave Bossert's website, 
DaveBosser.com. I know, Dave, you're going to talk more about that. And uh, our friends at Sure Microphones is S-H-U-R-E dot com for the MV7 podcast microphone. You can also email us, Dave, at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave, the holidays are here, and I hope you're getting some shopping done. Yeah, I'm already starting, I have to tell you. And if you're interested in, in finding some interesting gifts, uh, check out the oldmillpress.com. Uh, they have a new website up, and uh, they've got a variety of books there. Uh, check them out. You can get author-signed copies of, of some of the books, including some of mine. Uh, so uh, check out the oldmillpress.com and get your shopping done from the comfort of your home. Yes. Uh, you don't have to brave <laughs> the traffic or crowds. Uh, but with that, I would say, uh, have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving Happy to everybody. Thanksgiving. Yes. And we will see you here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.